at that point, my husband was like calling his brother again. And I said, don't call your brother. I said, take me to the hospital. I'm like, I have to go. And he's like, should I call 911? And I was like, no, I don't want to cause a big scene. (laughs) And I don't want to wake up the kids. Right. So just take me to the hospital. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Susan Schroeder. Susan is a wonderful woman with amazing depth and resolve who has had a surprising number of health challenges, which she refers to as glitches. Today, she came by the cafe to share with us the lessons she has learned from navigating these glitches. Let's get to the episode and please note that this will be part one of a two-part episode. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, Nikita. Thank you so much for having me. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience, Susan? Yes, happily. So my name is Susan Schroeder. I am a creative consultant, marketing advisor, and storyteller. I work and live out of Northern California. And in the past 20 years of my professional career, I have also had a crazy amount of health crises that have caused me to drop everything and take care of my body and then start all over and pick things up again. So, and this has been a repeated multiple pattern throughout my career and also my life. But as we know, life and career are intermingled. That's right. And you've got a lot going on, it sounds like, because you said not only are you a marketer, but you're a creative storyteller, and then you've got these health challenges that you had. And how did you handle them? How did you balance both? I don't think I did. (laughs) So my story is such that it's been interesting in, in big parts of my health journey. They've been related to my professional journey as well. So I'm happy to kind of like go through the chronology of that, if that makes sense. My first child was born right before I turned 30. And around that time, I was transitioning out of working in my career in publishing and starting my own graphic design studio. So through that, I wouldn't necessarily call that a health crisis because that was a joyful yet also not joyful experience for anyone who has children knows that childbirth is is not joy filled necessarily all the time. So that kind of started this first combination between health and work for me. And then after the birth of my second daughter, I had my own graphic design studio. I was doing work. I had some big clients and then I worked with a lot of little clients as well. And when I was 35, my kids were five and two, I had a spontaneous brain hemorrhage and I was hospitalized after we figured out what was going on. It took a couple days to figure out that I was having a brain hemorrhage. By the second day, I knew that something was seriously wrong and I was hospitalized at that point. I didn't have brain surgery until seven months later. So there's a whole story behind that, why that was the case. And then at that point, after having brain surgery, 
I had this like year ish long recovery and wasn't quite sure what I was going to be able to do with my business. And so kind of shut down my business and slowly worked on projects as I could. And then after about a year really started ramping up again and manifested again, there's another story behind that, but I manifested a big client that I then joined forces with and we created a company together. And I did that for about 10 years. And at the very end-ish of my tenure with that company that we created, I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. So there's some crazy stories that go along with that in that when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, we also were in the throes of finding out that the CFO, one of our partners in the company had been embezzling from the company for several years. (laughs) So there was this crazy mix of, and professional going on at that point. So when my doctor found out what was happening in my professional life, she quickly put me on disability leave and was like, you are not working right now. So I was again, sort of pulled out of my professional career, spent time in breast cancer treatment. I was very fortunate. It was early stage. I did not have to have chemotherapy, but I did have a lumpectomy and a breast reduction and a radiation treatment. And then once I started healing from that, again, it was this situation. What am I going to do with my life again? So I did not want to go back for various reasons to having my own design studio that felt like 10 years step backwards. So I moved forward and found a job and with this incredible organization in the Bay Area called The Hivery, which is a co-working space and incubator inspiration lab for entrepreneurs, which fit perfectly with everything that I'd been doing in building companies, in marketing companies, and doing graphic design. So I worked with that group for about three years and in the process had a couple crazy, another crazy health instances in that I had a viral myocarditis, which put me in the hospital. And that's a a virus that attacks your heart. I'm pretty sure I know where I got it because my daughter got pneumonia at the same time. So she got it. She got pneumonia and I got a myocarditis which was, which was weird. I'd never had any issues with my heart before. And then after that happened about a year later, I started having heart palpitations that to the point where my heart rate would get to like 200 beats per minute and I couldn't get it to stop. So I'd have to just go to the ER and they would try, you would try all these like weird maneuvers, like yoga type poses and like blowing into a straw and like crazy thing. And then whenever, when that didn't work, then they would have to give me a medication that would basically pause my heart in hopes that it would restart and reset. I was fortunate every time it did restart and it reset. And so that I would be on my way. After several incidences of that throughout a year, the cardiologist I had been seeing was like, you have to get this taken care of. This is going to weaken your heart. And so I was scheduled for a cardiac ablation. And there's a little bit of a story around the scheduling and the, and the canceling, and then the rescheduling of that ablation, but went through with the ablation and in during the procedure, which was an awake procedure, surprisingly, I'd never had an awake procedure at that point. It was about a four and a half hour procedure, they needed me to stay awake because they needed to be able to speed my heart up 
and slow it down in various paces. During that time, in the middle of the procedure, they realized I had what's called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which is a congenital defect in my heart, in the electrical system of my heart. So they were able to ablate that. Came back to work after healing from that, stayed with my same position. And then, gosh, it was probably like six or seven months later, I had a recurrence of breast cancer. So breast cancer a second time, which then resulted in a double mastectomy. That was 2018. So I had a pretty good run between (laughs) after that and then the cardiac ablation. And then I had 2019 was relatively smooth health-wise as far as I can recall. And then I was at the point where I was ready to go back and start transitioning to being my own boss again and working for myself. So we were in conversations about transitioning out of my job when COVID hit. So then COVID came around and I actually like instantly transitioned to having my own company. And we had to shut down our, our, our two co-working spaces. And it was just the right time for me to transition both for myself and for the company. And so I started my own business and we were super safe super strict about COVID here at home, really didn't go out much, didn't do anything. And then this last year I turned 50 and I had decided that I wanted to work with a nutritionist. I'd been diagnosed, actually, I forgot about this. I'd been diagnosed with two autoimmune disorders. So I wanted to see if I could attack those or not attack, maybe attack isn't the right word. I wanted to see if I could nourish my body (laughs) in a way nutritionally that would help alleviate the symptoms of the autoimmune issues. And then moving towards my 50th birthday, because I was working with a nutritionist, we did some testing that showed some interesting things that caused me to write when I turned 50, because here in the United States, insurance companies, actually this has changed, but when I was turning 50, you had to be 50 in order to have a colonoscopy covered by insurance. That has changed. So anyone who is listening to this, the age is now 45. And it did, and it changed like a month prior to us recording this. So if you're listening to this, you haven't had a colonoscopy, you're over 45, you're in the United States, I highly recommend you get a colonoscopy. My colonoscopy showed three different types of polyps, which is a which is rare to have more than one type and also showed a very large cancerous mass. So literally like a month ago, I had that removed and found out Fortunately, that it was not invasive. So I'm good to go for that. But after that second cancer diagnosis, the three polyps, my long and sorted health history, finally, I'm having doctors recommend me to see a genetic specialist because they're all along the way, each of these. I don't even call them illnesses to be perfectly honest, because I've never honestly felt sick except for the viral myocarditis. I've always felt like these were like injuries or glitches in the system because I didn't like referring to myself as being sick. So 
throughout all of these like glitches, several of them are congenital. So I have always wondered, is there something going on in my DNA and my genetics that is um, causing these to happen? The other kind of bizarre thing is that I don't have a family history of breast cancer. I don't have a family history of colon cancer. I don't have a family history of Wolf Parkinson White syndrome, and I don't have a family history of cavernous malformations. That was what was in my brain. That's what it was called. So where did this come from and why is this happening? And these are questions I have asked every doctor every time I have to sit down and give a health history, which is like, they're like, okay, tell me about your health history. And I'm looking like, how much time do you have? Like, right. you know, get, get a legal pad out. Cause you're going to be writing a lot of things down. And so I'm finally at that point now where I'm being referred to a genetic specialist, as opposed to having to constantly be asking that question of, are these all related? So Having my own business has allowed me to have the time and the freedom and the autonomy to manage all of these different crises that come up. And, you know, I have managed these types of health issues as an employee of a company, but had to be in a place that was super flexible. And so I have a lot of compassion for people who are in a situation where they are supporting themselves financially and they only get two weeks of sick time a year and maybe five vacation, you know, whatever that is, or maybe it's the opposite, two weeks of vacation time and five days of, of paid time off, you know. I just, I, I worry about people who have to go through things like this when they also have to support themselves. And that's, that is just a, a symptom of a bigger problem that we have in the United States with healthcare. I'm not a specialist in that. And that's not what we're talking about today, but so that's basically my journey and how it's related to my career in a nutshell, even though that was a very long nutshell. No, that was perfect. You have a lot going on. You shared some really fascinating information. I've been taking notes as I'm listening to you because there's so much I want to come back to. But let's start with the fact that you're 50. I mm-hmm. wish <laughs> I wish people could see you, Susan, because you do not look 50. You look amazing. <laughs> you're so sweet. Thank you so much. Well, that's one thing I will say that maybe is the positive thing that's going on in my genetics because <laughs> my mother was very youthful. She actually passed away in her 50s. She was young and had a very youthful look. So I just try, I just kind of chalk that up to genetics. Cause frankly, I'm not that great at sunscreen and I do spend a lot of time outside. So, but thank you. That's so, so sweet to say. That, that blew me away. Okay. So now let's go back to the top and let's start with the brain hemorrhage. How did you know that something was wrong? So it started the Friday before mother's day. Uh, mother's day is usually Sunday. I started not feeling good. I just felt like off. And I started feeling like I was coming down with something. I had two little kids. We were all the neighbors were playing out in the front yard. And I said to the dad who I was standing with, I said, 
can you just make sure you're really paying attention to the kids and make sure no one runs out in the street because I don't feel good and I'm not really paying very much attention. That turned into my husband came home from work and I I said to him, I'm like, I have to go lay down. I don't feel good. I think I'm getting the flu. I Interestingly enough, I had a high fever and throughout the course of that night, I started to get severe vertigo to the point where I didn't know up and down. I couldn't, I, the room was tilting and spinning like on a fun house and I was uncontrollably vomiting. Mm -hmm. And we called the doctor. Actually, my, my husband's first call was to his brother, whose uh, wife is a doctor and we called our doctor and they all said, it sounds like she has an inner ear infection. So my husband went next door, knocked on the neighbor's door at, at four in the morning and said, can you come over and hang out at my house while I run to the store and get Susan some Dramamine was what they recommended. So the neighbor was like, why don't you just stay home with Susan? I'll go get it for you. So I took Dramamine that night. It knocked me out. I was asleep. I slept through pretty much the next day, mostly that whole Saturday, I was kind of sleeping on and off on the couch from the Dramamine and the Dramamine started wearing off as the night started coming on and the dizziness and the spinning and the vomiting. I had what I feel like was probably a small seizure. And at that point, my husband was like calling his brother again. And I said, don't call your brother. I said, take me to the hospital. I'm like, I have to go. And he's like, should I call 911? And I was like, no, I don't want to cause a big scene. <laughs> and I don't want to wake up the kids. Right. So just take me to the hospital. And we got that our neighbor back over. He slept on our couch until our, to, you know, wait for our kids to wake up in the morning. I was in and out of consciousness in the car on the way to the hospital. And then one of the first things that they did when we got to the emergency room was a CT scan which showed a spot on my brain. And then at that point, they it was either a tumor or it was blood. And so then they did an MRI and they were able to see that it was a brain hemorrhage. Because I had a high fever, I, I was instantly transferred to another hospital. So I was put back in the ambulance and sent to San Francisco. And the, the surgeon who was practicing at the hospital in San Francisco was actually in Arizona. And he called my husband as my husband is following the hospital, the ambulance and said, I'm on a flight from Arizona. My interns will be there to receive her and I will be there shortly to perform surgery. What actually ended up happening is not having surgery because I had a very high fever and they couldn't figure out why it took them two days to realize I had a strep infection. It wasn't strep throat. It was like an internal strep infection. So at that point, they had decided not to perform surgery and it was too dangerous of a location to get that bleed, the, the grouping of vessels that caused the bleed. And so they sent me home. Yeah. I love that this, the surgeon called from Arizona to talk to your husband yeah. on the way that I that sounds very kind and comforting to me. Yes. He was an incredible man and was very kind, very comforting. He was very amped up to do the surgery and excited to do the surgery. And then when he arrived, the um, neurologist and the rest of the team, his 
his like excitement about the surgery sort of started dissipating as he was learning more and more about what was going on and realizing that it wasn't a safe time to do the surgery. And then following up with him, his opinion was that it was not a safe surgery to do. I asked him to refer me out for a second opinion. I'm fortunate that I'm in an area of the country where we have like really you know, top specialists in their field. And so he referred me out to UCSF, which is the University of San Francisco hospital at one particular surgeon he referred me to. And when I arrived after a long months of dealing with insurance and all that kind of stuff, finally got an appointment with him. I was anticipating lots of questions around how do I live with this? What lifestyle changes do I need to make in order to survive with this thing still in my brain? And I had pages and pages of questions on that topic. And he came in the room and the first thing he said was, okay, so when do you want to have surgery? And he explained that uh, different surgeons have different comfort levels with different types of surgeries. And his comfort level with this surgery was high. And he was very comfortable with doing it. He had done thousands of them. And the location did not worry him and that it was more worrisome because I was only 35 at the time to leave it in because it had a 2% chance per year of rupturing again. And if I had been 75, they probably would have said, don't have surgery. But at 35, when you hopefully have a lot of years left to live, that 2% accumulates and becomes a higher and higher risk. And because of the location being close to my brainstem, a larger bleed could have been catastrophic. So at that point, I actually made the decision to do elective brain surgery. So not a lot of people do elective brain surgery, but I'm fortunate that I was in a place where I could have that. How did they stop the bleeding or, you know, so you went in, you had this problem, the, the surgeon flew in right away because he thought he had to do something, but then they sent you home. So how did they fix it in the interim? They didn't do anything. They cured the strep. So I was in the hospital for about a week. And it's so easy to remember the days because I had the hemorrhage on Mother's Day. So that's a Sunday. By Tuesday, they realized I had strep. But leading up to Tuesday, I was slowly getting more and more paralyzed. Like I couldn't lift my arms off the bed. I couldn't open my mouth. You know, my husband would come in the room and I'd be like, so I can't really open my mouth today. And so by Tuesday, they realized I had strep within 24 hours of having the right antibiotics. I was feeling much better. So I was home. Well, that's a longer story, but I was sent to a rehab facility and was home by the following Tuesday-ish. So I was sent to a rehab facility on a Friday and then I, I was home by Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. So I was in the hospital for about a week and a half. And by that point, the bleed had stopped. It had been almost more like a leak. So it was a small bleed, but any amount of blood in your brain is gonna wreak havoc. And so what they deduced was that it had stopped and my body and my brain had started absorbing the blood that had leaked out. And their deduction was that it stopped and it's too dangerous. It could kill you to go in and get it. So we want to do the thing that's not going to kill you. And so that's a watch and wait approach from this first 
surgeon. And that's why I asked for a second opinion. Cause I, I couldn't imagine living with a time bomb in my head, wondering when it's going to go off. I mean, I'm a bit, I mean, I have good reason, but I am a bit of a hypochondriac. Yeah. Clearly I have an explanation <laughs> for why I'm a hypochondriac. But even then, when that was basically one of my very first diagnoses, I couldn't imagine living a peaceful, calm life, knowing that at any time, what if I'm driving in the car with my kids in the backseat and I have a massive brain hemorrhage, like that could kill all of us. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't feel comfortable with that watch and wait approach. That's fair. That sounds very fair. <laughs> and I like that you sounded like you were a very empowered person from the beginning. You, you you didn't seem to fear asking a second opinion. You showed up to your appointment with your pages and pages of notes. You were ready for Well, I will say I did fear asking for the second opinion. And I practiced saying it to in the mirror. I cried about it in advance. I wrote it down. I wrote a script for myself on how to say it. And when I was finally, you know, at this follow-up visit, I'm sitting, I wasn't in an examining room. Like we were in this gorgeous, beautiful, huge doctor's office. And there's this like really handsome, you know, very kind, gracious, compassionate, smart doctor sitting in front of you. And it's intimidating. I mean, he's like, he's good looking. He, he's smart. He knows what he's talking about. And I'm about to question everything. And, and it was, that was not easy. That took a lot of guts, but I, I had to do it. It was the first time I'd ever really had to advocate for myself. And it kind of took everything in me to be able to do it. And I'm so grateful that I did. And he was so kind. And so, you know, I think I might've said, like, I might've squeaked out something that was along the lines of, well, should I consider getting a second? And then he sort of jumped in and was like, yes, you should definitely get a second opinion. So he knew he could tell, I think I was probably sweating profusely too. So yes, by any means, that was not an easy thing to do. I've gotten a lot more demanding, the more experience that I've had, and I've had many experiences, but advocating for myself did not come naturally. And it sounds like he was okay. He kind of received you well. So that's exciting. You worked it up in yeah. your head to be a lot more than it turned out to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He received it well. And my, you know, I, again, I have a doctor in the family. My sister-in-law is a doctor and she was very much like that. Ha this happens all the time. It's normal. People, he's not going to get offended. And, but, you know, not being a doctor myself and being, a kind of a pleaser type personality. I was like, Oh, do I really want to question this person's authority? But I have now since learned how important it is to listen to yourself, to understand your own power, to understand that you know your body better than anybody else, and to know and remember that doctors and nurses are people too, they're humans. And they're not perfect. They're not, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to have bad days. They're going to, you know, be in bad moods. And many of them are heroes, 
but that doesn't mean that they're superhuman. You know, they are human beings and we can relate to them on a human to human level. They're heroes, but that doesn't mean that they're superhuman. Oh, I love that. So that was your brain hemorrhage experience and you were brave enough to ask for the second opinion. You got referred to a surgeon who had a higher comfort level and he fixed your cavernous malformation. Then the next adventure you had was being (laughs) diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. How did you learn about that and how did you handle it? So I am a big advocate for mammograms as soon as, as early as you can. So if you have any breast cancer in your immediate family, then you're supposed to get a mammogram 10 years prior to when that person was diagnosed. The normal time frame when I was in my 40s was you get your mammogram in your 40s. I had had a mammogram when I was 35 because I had felt like some lumps in my breast that turned out to be nothing. And my OB at the time had said, you know, you've had a baseline. You don't need to rush when you turn 40. It's, you know, he wasn't a big advocate of mammograms. And I'm, it didn't sit with me well at the time. And it's another thing to say of like, listen to yourself. Cause that didn't quite sit with me, but I just listened to what he said. And then when I was 45, I very suddenly had a huge lump appear in my left breast. And I was at the volleyball junior nationals in Indianapolis with my daughters. And I remember saying to the other mom, I was sharing a hotel room. I, I was like, can you feel this? And so I made her feel the lump and I was like, that doesn't feel normal. Does it? She's like, that doesn't feel normal. Mm -hmm. So I went, I got home from that tournament and scheduled a visit with my doctor right away. I was seeing a different um, doctor at that point she got me right into a mammogram. And there's that thing that happens when you're having a mammogram where you're like watching the technician's face. And so I was having a mammogram and then an ultrasound and all of their faces seemed very calm. And then I was having the ultrasound and the, the tech was like smiling and chatty. And I looked at her and I go, can you tell me anything? And she said, I'm just going to tell you this right now. It looks like a cyst. This thing is full of water. So I don't think you have to worry. Mm. Oh my gosh. I texted my husband. I was like having phone calls. I was like partying in the room. And then she, they send you out to the waiting room. And then that's when they like the radiologist looks at it. And then I got called back again. And I was like, well, that's weird. And they were focusing on the other breast. And so this went on for, I want to say at least an hour and was finally brought into like the last room and sat down with a nurse. And she handed me a pamphlet that said something like early stage breast cancer on it. And I looked down and I was like, what is going on right now? And I instantly started crying and I was like, but it was just a cyst. And she said, you're right. It is just a cyst, but we found early stage breast cancer in your other breast. So not the one that you felt the lump in. Not the one I felt the lump in. Oh, interesting. Okay. So actually she didn't say we found early stage breast cancer. I'm jumping ahead. She basically said, we see some suspicious things. So then it's like this conversations, you do a BRCA test, the spit test, the genetic thing you do, you go you wait, 
you schedule a biopsy, you wait for a lifetime, it feels like when it's really about a week to get your results, but that's like the longest week of your entire life. And then for me, I got a phone call from a very patient nurse who told me over the phone that it was cancerous. It was uh, what they call DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, which means it's from what they can tell, it's contained within the milk duct. You know, they say, if you're going to have cancer, it's the one you want. And I didn't want any cancer, frankly. (laughs) And when she was telling me and she said the word carcinoma, I said, well, wait a minute. I'm like, are you telling me I have breast cancer right now? And she was very gentle and very kind, but she was like, basically, yes. And then I lost it, not crying, but I got like really angry. And this poor woman, I went off about how I had brain surgery and this is not supposed to be like, I had my thing and I should be done. Like, what are you talking? There's not, not in my family. So she was very patient. I've talked to her for like an hour on the phone or whatever. And then the process started. And so, you know, there's lots of twists and turns along the breast cancer process. What was very interesting to me because I had already had a big health crisis What was fascinating in retrospect, comparing the two was the amount of support that I received for having a very minor, very tiny, early stage breast cancer compared to the amount of support that I received from having a brain hemorrhage was night and day. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was given by the medical institution, by the breast cancer center in my area, free massages, free nutritionist appointments, free therapist appointments, free fitness class. It was insane. (laughs) When I was looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, I had like brain surgery. Mm -hmm. And then I had a six week appointment follow-up and my surgeon was like, okay, you're done. Let's see you later. You know, I'm like, what? I can't, my vision was all messed up from my brain. Like I had a year's worth of recovery still ahead of me. And yet for this tiny microscopic piece of breast cancer, I was getting all this attention and it was weird and it didn't feel right. And it was like one of the second times, it was probably the second or third time that the idea of not all illnesses are created equal, mm-hmm. really honed in for me in that there is so much attention and fundraising and funding and support, especially where I live. My county has one of the highest breast cancer rates in the state of California. Mm-hmm. So even in this county, there's a lot of attention on this disease. And it was very a- apparent to me. And having had a mother, my mother um, died from ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, which nobody knew about at the time until the whole, the ice bucket challenge came along. And then people started learning, like, what is this ALS thing? People started understanding. So it made me have compassion for all of those unpopular diseases that people get. And there are many, 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 there are so many of them. So I think that, you know, yes, I had breast cancer, 
yes, it's very scary to have someone diagnose you with the word cancer, but it was also very enlightening in many ways that, and I am grateful and so appreciative of all the funding and the attention on breast cancer. Don't, don't get me wrong. I I have benefited from it, but at the same time, it, it really opened my eyes to the disparities in healthcare just amongst diseases. So even if you just look at what the diagnosis is, there's so many other factors that play into inequity in healthcare, looking just at the diseases that it plays a role. And I was surprised by that. And I, that was not something I expected. And I get more people calling me or texting me to say something like, my friend was just diagnosed with breast cancer, or my mom was just diagnosed with breast cancer, or I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you blah, blah, blah? Like, can you talk to her? Can you, do you have any advice? Do you, you know, all that, what should I do to help her? Like I get a lot of those inquiries around breast cancer. I don't get those inquiries around having a brain hemorrhage. Maybe it's because it's not as common, but I know people are having them. So I think it might have something to do with the comfort level. It, we are, we're comfortable talking about breast cancer. You know, people aren't, there's, there's a lot of things out there that we're not comfortable talking about from an illness perspective, mental health. And, you know, the fact that I had a colon cancer, that's not something I've even really put out into the world yet. It's very recent. And I wanted to wait before telling people until I actually knew what was happening. But that has, that's been fascinating about the breast cancer world. And I've also been so pleasantly surprised at how wonderful it is to be given and to be willing to receive support. So when I went through my brain surgery, I was a young mom and I needed a lot of help and I accepted help and I did, I was able to ask for help now and then, but when it came time to having breast cancer, I really allowed myself to receive support in a way that I don't think I had, had done before. What do you think was the difference? What do you think caused that shift? I think because there's so much awareness about mm-hmm. breast cancer. I think that people are comfortable talking about it. And I also feel like I knew how to receive. I had learned how to receive in a way that worked for me, in a way that didn't feel like that I was burdening others and it didn't feel like I was pleasing others. So there's kind of two sides to that coin of when people offer and when you receive support, like sometimes, for example, with my, my brain hemorrhage, people were bringing us meals and dinners. And that was so incredibly helpful for my family. And it got to the point where it was hard to say, no, don't bring dinner. And we'd get to the stage where like our refrigerator was packed with all this food that we weren't going to be able to eat and all these dishes that we felt like we had to return and all, you know, so it was like at that point, receiving help felt like I was doing it just to make them feel like they were helping. I wasn't doing it because I actually needed it. And so I started to learn those fine lines. And so when I had breast cancer, I was super clear with people on, uh, 
you know, I was like, I was kind of almost like business-like about it. It was probably a little annoying, but I, you know, I sent out an email and I was like, here's what I have. Here's the Google link. I would, or here's the, the website link I would recommend you read. Don't Google anything else. You can ask me any questions. I'm giving you all this information. If you want to help us, here are the four things that you can do. If you're going to bring a meal, please sign up to bring it on this calendar. Please leave it at the front door in a cooler, no sugar, no desserts. Even if you want to just drop by something for the kids, no sugar, no desserts. <laughs> I got like really demanding with my friends. Honestly, you should probably interview them because they might've said like, yeah, she was a nightmare, <laughs> but it was, it helped me receive in a way that was actually really helpful. And then the other thing that I learned that I didn't, I wasn't able to practice so much with my brain hemorrhage because I had a lot of fear. It also happened at a time in my life when there was some periphery things going on. And I won't go too much into that detail. I am actually writing a book about it, but I was surrounded by grief in that time. So I wasn't able to call upon humor so much during my brain odyssey. <laughs> but while I had, when I had breast cancer, I was able to really lean in to laughing and really leaned on my friends who were like the ones that I had the most laughs with. And Whenever somebody asks me now, like, what can I do to help my friend who's just gone through X? And it doesn't have to be breast cancer. It can be pretty much anything. I always tell them the story of my dear friend who, when I was going through the throes of recovering from, I think it was when I had my double mastectomy. So I had the breast cancer recurrence and that's like a messy, the healing process. And she told me the story of the time she flew home from Mexico wearing shorts, having an like a horrific food poisoning in, oh, wow. on the plane <laughs> and had to stay in the bathroom as the plane landed. And she told it in a way that was almost like, she was a stand-up comedian and I was her audience of one mm. and her telling me the horrific story of what she went through around something that was going on with her body made me feel so much better about the fact that I had just had my breasts removed and was dealing with all the different things that were going on in my body at that time. So when us humans share our calamities, it makes our own anxiety about our own anxieties and calamities and the things that are going on in our body feel that much more survivable. Definitely. I agree. And that sounds like quite an adventure that your friend had. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I've encouraged her many times to like record her telling the story and she is refuses. She's like, that is the most embarrassing story of my entire life. Like I'm ever going to put that out in the world and have my face <laughs> accompany it. Exactly. Um, but that's part of it. It's like, we need those kinds of stories to help us realize that, you know, we have a human body that doesn't always cooperate. Mm -hmm. And just because we look all put together, 
doesn't mean that we're not having issues or challenges with this vessel that is carrying us around in the world. (laughs) What was the time span between the brain hemorrhage and the cancer diagnosis? Almost exactly 10 years. Oh, wow. And then the first diagnosis and the second one? Just under two years. Okay. Yeah. So I did not make the two-year mark. Okay. And in between then, you had your viral myocarditis. Yes. So I'm still like that one. I remember the circumstances when it happened. I can't exactly remember the year. I would have to look back at all my records, but it was another volleyball thing. My daughter and I had been in a tournament in Colorado. Uh, My kids played at this high level um, of volleyball and we were flying home. Our flight was delayed and delayed and delayed. We finally left Denver, I think at like midnight and ended up walking into our house by 4 Mm a.m. And we both got sick and she got pneumonia and I got what um, felt like the flu, but I was having heart palpitations and I had never had that before. So I went to my primary doctor and saw the nurse practitioner who told me she thought I was having GERD, which is like a, like an acid reflux thing. And I was like, all right, whatever. And she, but she did an EKG in the office. And then I left, there was nothing, I was like, I'm not going to, I don't think this is GERD, but fine, you know, write the prescription. And as I was driving home, they asked me to go to the lab and do blood work. And they were like, we just called it in. Please go now. And I was like, all right. So I drove to the lab and I (laughs) did blood work. Then I was driving home and I got home and I remember it pretty vividly. It was around 6 p.m. And my doctor called me and she said, where are you? And I was like, I'm in my kitchen. (laughs) And she said, we would like you to go to the ER. And I was like, why is that? (laughs) And I'm all, I'm actually feeling a lot better. I'm like, everything seems fine now. And she said, based on your blood levels, we think you're having a cardiac episode. And I was, or no, a cardiac event. That's what she said, event. And I looked and I was like, a heart attack? Are you, are you saying I'm having a heart attack right now? (laughs) It wasn't funny at the time, but so she said, we would like you. And I was like, well, I'm like, can I drive? She's like, don't do not drive yourself. And so I was like, okay, we had new neighbors living in the house that were the brain hemorrhage neighbors. So I went to the same house, <laughs> knocked on her door and I said, can you drive me to the ER? My doctor thinks I'm having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't funny at the time. I was definitely upset and I was crying and she was crying and she was holding my hand and we had piled all of our kids into the back seat of her car. And I just looked at her. I was like, don't come in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to go in just drop me off and go back and please just deal with the kids if you can't. So she dropped me off and I walked into the um, hospital and they told me that I was having a cardiac event and they admitted me and I felt fine at that time. And they admitted me overnight. And I remember so vividly the cardiologist that came up who was on call, who's now my regular cardiologist came into my room and it was probably like 11 o'clock at night by this point. And he asked me some simple question. And I said to him, similar to what I did to the nurse who called me with the breast cancer diagnosis. I said to him, I was like, listen, you got to get to know me. Listen to all these things I've had. (laughs) So then I rattled off my whole health history and 
he was probably out of all the doctors I've had the most present. He sat there with me, I think at least an hour. It was probably maybe an hour and a half. He listened to my whole story. He made eye contact the whole time. He never broke eye contact. He was asking questions. He was making compassionate noises, you know, listening, nodding, all the things you're doing right now. And he, that experience was the most seen I had ever felt in a healthcare setting. And so he's my cardiologist to this day. And at that point, I did like a stress test the next day. It's that thing where you run as fast as you can on the treadmill and they do an ultrasound of your heart and everything was fine. So they just basically chalked it up to a virus. And then that same cardiologist was my doctor when I started having the random um, heart palpitations. And they would happen most frequently. The first time it happened was after a friend's 50th birthday party late at night. You know, I'd had a few drinks and all of a sudden my heart is racing. The second or, you know, subsequent times it had happened was usually around alcohol. And I don't consume a lot of alcohol. So it would be maybe like two drinks and my heart would start racing. And it was random. It wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you why one time versus another time. And by the fifth time in a year, that was when my cardiologist said, okay, you have to have an ablation. And I booked it with an electrophysiologist who I met. Yeah. I mean, she looked 12, but I just loved her and she was hilarious. And she was, she was fun. Like we had fun in our visits. And I had a friend ask me which hospital I was having it done at. And when I told her, she gasped and she was like, you can't, you can't, I've heard terrible things about the hot, you know, and she was talking negatively about the hospital and I panicked and I canceled the appointment for the surgery. And then it was probably like a week or two weeks later, I had another bout of SVT. That's what it's super ventricular tachycardia. I had another late night bout, went to the ER, they restarted my heart, went home, got home, got back into bed. The moment I laid down, it started again. And I looked at my husband and I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, we have to go back. And so we went back. And at that point, they didn't let me leave the hospital. And I rescheduled my ablation procedure. And in the time frame between the cancellation and the reschedule, I spoke with my sister-in-law again, who's a doctor. And another very close friend of ours who was an anesthesiologist at the hospital where I had my brain surgery and was very involved with our family during that time, really helping us. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. when I, when I got home from the hospital, he came over one day and helped my mother-in-law unload our Thanksgiving turkey from the car. And then he took my stitches out of my head in the same (laughs) visit, you know, so like special person. And, um, Both of them said the same thing to me when I told them my concerns, which was, do you like the doctor? And I'm like, well, I love the doctor. And they said, that's all that matters. If you connect with the doctor and if you really, really like the doctor, that's what's most important. Don't worry about what some random person who maybe heard something bad about this hospital or they're like, all hospitals are going to have things that happen that aren't meant to happen. And, but if you like and trust the doctor, then you're in good hands. So I went with that and I've gone with that advice ever since then. And it seems to have really worked for me. So 
I had the ablation done and that was the, the four and a half hour awake procedure. And that's when she discovered in the process that I had Wolf Parkinson white syndrome. And she, you know, there's a lot of hubbub that happens in an, in an operating room. And when you're a patient, usually you're out and you don't realize that. And there's like, they're talking about the football game behind you and there's people laughing, you know, it's a workplace. Yeah. <laughs> you forget. It's like they have their co-working banter. And there was one point when my surgeon said something to the effect the, and the way they do a cardiac ablation is fascinating. There's like a woman, there's a person in one room and then the surgeon and there it's like screens are involved and electric electricity. And it's, very, it feels very Frankenstein-y. And she said something like, okay, well, it's, it's Wolf Parkinson white. We have to poke through to the other side. And somehow I was able to say, are you poking? (laughs) Because I was, I was sedated, but I was still awake and it was, but it was hard to speak. And she heard me and she says, yes, Susan, we are, don't worry. You're going to be like, oh my word. All right. So I'm hearing a couple of things. And one sounds just like you have an amazing community around you. Like, mm-hmm. and that's really awesome from your first neighbor to your second set of neighbors, to your husband, to your family. That's really awesome that you have all this support for all that you are going through or have experienced. And I love the advice. Yeah, it's the community is everything. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for everybody that surrounds me. And isn't that's another thing that falls under that list of inequities in healthcare is not everybody has a supportive community. Not everybody has the relationship skills to build a supportive community. Mm-hmm. And I feel so privileged and fortunate in that way that I have this incredibly supportive family. My husband being on the front lines of every single one of these things. Many women are left by their husbands when they they deal with a health crisis. I learned that from a tattoo artist that I worked with who does mastectomy scar cover-up tattoos. And my husband and I flew to Chicago and, and had this man, spent two days with this guy tattooing us <laughs> basically I have a I have a tattoo it starts Ooh, here pretty. it goes down you know yeah. across my body and, and he said the number of women that he's seen whose husbands have left him, them during the crisis because they don't know how to cope is it's normal and so to not be in that position I feel so very grateful and fortunate and you know I I'm so lucky yeah That's pretty amazing. Here ends part one of Susan's story. Isn't she remarkable? To hear how it all ends and to continue learning more of the lessons that Susan has learned from her glitches, be sure to tune in to the podcast next week to listen to part two and the conclusion of my interview with Susan. If you have enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe to our mailing list on thegoodhealthcafe.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn for more details and updates. See you in the cafe next time. Bye.